Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This is our first episode of the new year, and, well, as such, it took some time to make, as you remember the last one was just in the Christmas. However, there's a lot to talk about, but first I'd like to give a special thank you to Megan. Megan, you're awesome, and I can't await your package, and thank you for being one of the best listeners the show has, and... Thank you for, for chatting with me on Facebook and sending us the package. It was truly amazing, and we hope that we'll receive it soon. But um, with the more important stuff, see, uh, my medical procedures are finally over, and on the 6th of February, I am going to be in LA. That's what I fly in. And then, well, I will slowly be starting my move to the United States. Yeah, happening there, folks. So, uh, just in case, just in case I know that one of you was there and, like, had connections or worked in Disneyland, this would be a great time if you'd contact me about going there or, or something. But, yeah, all of you, at least folks living in the West Coast, will have the chance to meet me, well, at least for a week or so, I think. So, do use that opportunity and message us, and it's gonna be awesome. However, this episode is going to be some sort of a recap of the previous year, and also also some, some look on what's about to happen with all of my region as I slowly move away from it. The thing is that I wanted to start with the recap of the previous year about all the things that I looked at, but right now I want to talk to you about Belarus. The latest things that have happened in, in our region are... Some sort of wild talks, even. Um, they, they were wild because they were unprepared for, and they were just crazy, uh, between Vladimir Putin and Alexander Lukashenko. And they had a lot of disagreements there. Russia-Belarus tensions became quite visible. See, for one, uh, you might not know this, but Russia and Belarus have an agreement technically to produce something called a union state. That is, that they would integrate themselves within each other, and that... It would be a democratic society or, or something where both of these nations would be united. See, uh, by this point, Russia's top officials are becoming increasingly insisting in their statements calling for further creation of this so-called union state that would comprise the two states. As Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev noted, Moscow is ready to move along this path, including to, quote, create a single emission center, a single customs agency, unified courts, and an accounts chamber leader of Belarus, Lukashenko, is at this point not amazed. However, I do think that we shall see a closer unification with them in the following few years. Putin's main goal in this whole regard of the unity is consolidation around Russia of different buffer zones, either by directly absorbing territories of other states, as could happen with Belarus, or preserving a neighboring state in the gray zone, as it is, well, right now in the case of Ukraine. For Putin, the strategic task is the so-called accumulating of the Russian lands, 
And that also helps him to A, stay in power, and B, you know, not solve the internal issues, because, well, he has to feed his oligarchy. And that might be something that the Russian people themselves, well, you know, they'd rather not have. But propaganda works, in this case, on both sides, because, you know, at the end, everyone just wants to live better. Well, sometimes they're not getting it. The less tensions between Belarus and Russia have economic roots, for one. Among other things, the reason is the so-called pipe. A gas line that ran via Belarus, sort of feeding Lukashenko and the guys around him, because, you know, Lukashenko is a special sort of a leader, so to speak. He was once called the last dictator of Europe, if you remember. And uh, this thing is that Moscow has now put a plug on this pipe. And, yeah, one other thing is that at this point it is valuable to remember that 100% of Belarus' gas infrastructure, like all the pipes and everything that they use to get gas from Russia, is owned by Gazprom as it was sold to them. So, a nice thing to remember as they can't get their independence that easily. See, as Russia continues the process of absorbing Belarusian economy, Lukashenko is naturally resisting, at the same time trying not to lose all levers of influence or, you know, profits. In fact, this has long been a traditional controversy between Putin and Lukashenko, as, you know, these guys have been arguing about this topic at least once per year. Belarusian economy is artificial, totally. For the most part, the economy there is based on duty-free access to Russia's energy resources, in particular oil, and further sales including to European Union, Ukraine, uh, everyone basically. So, they buy their oil and gas completely duty-free, without paying any taxes of it, and they uh, manufacture gasoline from it and sell them onwards. So, this is all Russia-dependent. And this is the lion's share of the Belarusian so-called economic miracle. And really, if you think about it, why should Putin take away these resources from his own people and give away these resources if, you know, he himself could control profits? Besides, why, why should Putin remain too patient about Lukashenko in the top office? However, there are some more hints pointing at the ongoing process between the two countries. Putin is now in his last cadence as a president according to the Constitution of Russia. Accordingly, he seeks to retain the existing system after he formally steps down. One of the options allowing him to do so is to create a superstructure, this union state, where he could be an arbiter over a junior partner. This option is, well, as I think, uh, inevitable and quite possible even in the near future. Russian officials, at the same time, however, are looking for a good reason to reformat the Constitution, claiming that, although the Constitution is a special law, this does not mean it can't be changed. For one, it had 282 amendments in 1992, the early days of it. Earlier statements by Putin were voiced that, quote, Putin is Russia, there is no Putin, there is no Russia. That, too, had happened. From the military strategic perspective, the emergence of such a union state would lead to Russia seriously boosting its military presence in Belarus, which, uh, if we look at this abstract perspective, would greatly complicate things for us here in the Baltic states and for Ukraine and everyone else who has a bone to pick with Russia. All of us are just a bit too close to the Belarus border, Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania bordering directly, and so does Ukraine. So if Russia goes for an offensive, highly unlikely, highly unlikely, but still, we will be the guys who will struggle to stop the Blitz advance. Secondly, such a superstate project is also interesting to Russia in the context of the United States' withdrawal from the INS Treaty, as Moscow would benefit from stretching their missile muscle across the territory of Belarus in the medium term. Absorbing Belarus would also benefit Putin in terms of cementing his political ratings in Russia, which have fallen down lately due to pension reforms and economic stagnation and the fall of ruble, which has been extra, extra important in the latter days, as, and this is a bit of a sidetracking, Putin just uh, signed into law a bill that basically stated that right now 
in Russia, it is illegal for banks and exchange offices, you know, to actively publish their exchange rates visible in public. I watched uh, some news and, you know, a show on Russia Television 1 about this whole situation. They stated, well, right now you can just see, you know, on the tabloids outside or on the billboards, which used to carry the stock exchange rates. Right now, all you can see is that this institution is working with exchanging stuff, but you only get the full rate as a surprise if you walk inside. This is kind of reminiscent of the Soviet era days where people wouldn't know about how and what would happen. So, you know, about the, the exchange rate was fixed and people weren't informed because the whole Soviet ruble wasn't fully convertible. However, however, this is a complex issue because, you know, the internal control has to be strict, but, uh, his ratings has been going down because of this. See, for one, Russia has long been a state exporting aggression, and this is probably the main resource of Putin's popularity. In Chechnya, in Moldova, in Ukraine, in Georgia, everywhere, basically. Recent polls by Levada Center show that Putin's support levels have slid down to that recorded before the annexation of Crimea. Very slowly, yet still, Russians are starting to see the connection between dropping living standards and Putin's foreign and security policies. Nevertheless, such drivers as a test launch of some new hypersonic missile, or, as usual, small victorious war, or protection of uh, Russians abroad, still make, you know, people living in Russia rejoice, leading to high ratings for Putin. So these motives cannot be ruled out either. From this point of view, the largest aggravation of Lukashenko-Putin relations is understandable. After all, Russia is struggling to advance on any other front, so Putin must demonstrate to his voters at least some, you know, obvious wins. Besides, why share power and money with Batka, or Lukashenko, as, you know, he's known, if it's better to swallow his country and only then move forward with the expansion? Neither the experts nor the Belarus president himself are aware of how strong his resistance could be to Russia or whether he has any chance to hinder Moscow's plans. Lukashenko has been squeezing out opposition and all that is nationalistic or democratic for too long. He will get rid of everyone but his androids in government, who from time to time get an occasional whooping from him. See, in democracies, despite public instability, heated debates in parliament, fistfights on camera and opposition forces in place, there is generally always someone to rely on. Meanwhile, authoritarian regimes annihilate everything around themselves, and when the resource feeding that authoritarian regime exhausts itself, this resource, which is basically large volumes of cheap oil, which, for one, allows Putin to make regular payments to civil servants and security forces. Yeah, always something serious happens, and then the regime tends to fall. Lukashenko has found himself in exactly the same situation where he has no one to rely on in terms of political forces or public opinion leaders. In addition, Lukashenko has always just as stubbornly put pressure on the country's culture and language. Belarus is known to be extremely Russified. Belarusians watch, watch Russian news, and accordingly they are part of the so-called Russian world. Therefore, of course, they will not perceive Russian absorption in their independence, as, well, side note again, Ukrainians did in 2014 when they ousted Yanukovych, uh, these Belarusian folks will not take up their arms to defend their country from Russia. Another important point is the KGB and the military. On the one hand, Lukashenko, like any other dictator, paid a lot of attention to these structures and cleansed their ranks from time to time. But it remains unclear what the actual share is of Belarusian military and security officials with that Russian world in their heads. Moreover, if even Ukraine, even in Ukraine, the defense ministry and several intelligent security agencies had once been run by officials with Russian passports in their back pockets, still you have to wonder how many such people serve in the KGB and other structures in Belarus. Because yeah, the Belarus still has KGB. They literally did not abandon their Soviet infrastructure and all those civil institutions. Also, Belarusian society is under constant pressure. There is, well, literally less free media than the Russia has. So it remains an open question how Russia's occupation of Belarus will take place, will it be opposed, whether the people will take it to the streets to support Lukashenko and the struggle of not being swallowed. The scenario where Russia absorbs Belarus, in my mind, looks inevitable at the moment. The inactive phase of this process had been launched much earlier. In any case, Belarus is Russia's military political ally. There are joint boards of defense and foreign ministries. That is, in fact, they are already coordinating their foreign and security policies. They have almost no discrepancies in their positions regarding the outside world. In particular, NATO is defined as a threat. Even though, yes, there are people who actually think that NATO will commit some sort of aggression. Which is just silly, in my opinion. In this regard, Putin and Lukashenko are not that different. 
In fact, the only small difference still remaining between Russia and Belarus is their national flags. However, even in Belarus, their own Belarusian national flag, which is essentially an inverse of Latvian, is, you know, quite suppressed and is used only by their right-wing forces who kind of want to bring back the Belarusian culture and language. Beyond that, this slow encroachment has long been happening. But will it be completed in the near future? Well, I think it will. It's still an open question, but I think we will see in the following five years. Anyway, if the Belarusians show at least the slightest resistance, this will require from Russia spending a ton of resources. Manpower, including special forces, military managers, or, you know, whatever little green men or whomever Putin's gonna employ, or even might as well be Wagner from Prigozhin, as well as money. After all, any takeover involves high costs, at least the first stage, and there are no sufficient resources in Russia at present, because Russia's been draining. Seriously draining. Secondly... Secondly, uh, like Crimea itself has been a massive train on Russian finances, which, you know, have only been made worse by the sanctions and the fact that they are unable and unwilling to fix their own economy with the constant corruption and constant failures that they have. Besides, at this point, Russians can act, as they say, only with their boots directly on the ground, that is, having someone in the field to follow Moscow's orders. Russia cannot manage territories by creating an attractive future and affecting people with ideas. And again, this is what we've seen in Crimea. Russians can only control the area by deploying more FSB operatives and others in mass by pumping in money and, and trying to fix things, even though they're polluting everything around them and, and a bunch of um, companies have been going bankrupt. As long as Russia has enough resources, money, oil, manpower, the absorption of territories will continue, and as soon as these resources become scarce, these territories will fall off. And uh, we can even see this in the case of Chechnya. And yeah, Ramzan Kandirov shall get his own special episode, because this year... Oh boy, this year it's something special. But Ramzan Kandirov gets paid hundreds of thousands of rubles per day to ensure Chechnya loyalties. If Russia takes over Belarus, this will be bad for Ukraine and Baltics in the short term, maybe for Poland as well, but in the long run, this will be yet another burden for Russia, which will ultimately lead to Minsk flipping away from Moscow. And today, today, I actually don't see the resources that could maintain this Russian Federation with its current borders. Even more so with Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, and also Belarus. And you have to mention here that in his latest speech, Putin just stated that Russia has 160 million people living in it, even though the official sources state 147 million, even though the kind of authentic data puts it at a region of, and I'm speaking about maximum, maximum capacity here, around uh, 119 million people. And which is really sad for me, because even though I might be bashing Putin's government here, I actually would like to see Russian people prosper, and if your population has just struggled and cannot make it through due to economical crises, and that has influenced our neighbors even here, because our population in Latvia is dwindling too, that's a thing that shows that economically things are not going into the best direction. And I would truly, truly be happy if Russians would finally enjoy some happiness and prosperity in their own country, because Russia has, at this point, joined those countries whose pension age is higher than the average, average life expectancy. And to add to all of this, to all these troubles with the economical issues which are going to continue throughout this year, let's not forget that Russia is still in Syria, the Central African Republic, and many other countries. This is a bit of an expansionist policy that's being implemented here. However, if you think about it, the economical basis is collapsing and the people are paying for it, which makes me the most disturbed, because even though I hate Putin with terrible passion, it is the common people of Russia who are paying for all these expansionist policies. And given the resource overload, which is just spent on military issues, Russia, just like any other country in this situation, who would just, instead of spending money on its people, would spend more on the military, without bounds and reasons, just to keep up the political power. This simply brings Russia closer to a deeper crisis. Not even collapse. Like I said, two options here. But 2019... It's not looking really nice. Now, what is it looking like? Because these were the important parts. Well, I'd like to catch up on some old stories that we mentioned here in the show. But before we get to our next segment, this is the time for our med news. So, essentially, about the future of the show. Well, we're going to be working even harder this year than we did in the previous one, as our team has now finally formed, and we're actually pretty good at doing this show, and everyone seems to be enjoying it quite a lot. Next two episodes 
shall be brought to you by Aneta, because she has been spending her time in Cuba, and she has enough material to make two episodes happen out of this whole thing, and she'll tell you all about the socialistic roots and how it's like in Cuba, and, you know, what has happened there. She'll be doing this on her own short uh, film as well, at some point, but you'll get the whole material in our shows. So, please pay attention to that, as I'm very happy that she's taken such an interactive role in this whole situation, and that she'll have a great practice, and who knows, maybe, just maybe, this year you will have the opportunity to get a podcast of her own as well, at some point, which would be awesome, and we, of course, support her at the Eastern Border, as, you know, she's literally our sound producer. Secondly, don't forget to join our Discord channel, as I'm always there, and uh, thank you, thank you to all the patrons. I haven't spoken personally to all of you, but uh, thank you for supporting me, and it means oh so much to me. And this time, especially as I'm moving, and your all donations keep the show alive, and you are great. Those people who support us on Patreon, you're the best, and yeah, I've been a bit late with my, uh, with my rewards, but they're coming, they're coming, and I have planned, it's just that, well... My uh, illness took a lot of effort and strength from me, and my move to the States is also a complex issue which needs to be solved, and personal time and personal issues have been taken a lot of time away from the show, which I should instead devote to you guys who support me, both on Patreon and on PayPal. And if you also want to become a patron of the show, go to patreon.com slash border. that's one word, or just, you know, find us through our sign-up page and our Facebook page, facebook.com slash border where you can find us, and there, if you click on the sign-up button, you can instantly become a patron. Uh, secondly, if you go to our homepage, our own homepage, theeasternborder.lv, then you will find a donate button there, and you can set up a monthly payment on PayPal, or just to make a one-time donation. And that is for all of you guys who rather would want to support the show on a per-month basis. We sort of thought about uh, making uh, the Patreon on a per-month basis, but, well, as it turns out, that would be a lot of hustle and a lot of weird things happening and just be too complicated at this point. But if you'd rather support the show that way, then I haven't forgotten about you, and you can just go to our donate page and just click the button, and then then just set up a monthly PayPal donation. That would help a lot, too, especially since I am, well, moving to the United States, and... Well, at least for a couple of months, I will not be able to legally work there. Yeah, therefore, uh, this podcast shall be my only income in the United States, because I want to make this right, I want to make this legal, I do not want to get deported, and I would really enjoy setting up shop there and making sure everything works out. I'll be going there with Chantel, my beloved fiancé, and uh, we shall, you know, try to make all of this thing work. And then, then I have a special thank you, because truly, truly meeting Chantel was um, a miracle, so to speak. It saved me from Great Depression, and I'm trying to be the best I can for her. And I'm really, really happy about, you know, I received a ton of uh, emails and messages from all of you guys about the last episode when you got to hear her voice. And it was truly beautiful, and uh, I thank you for all the support, and I'm sure Chantel does too, even though she's in Tartu at this moment. But yeah. Yeah, this is important to me. So don't forget to follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Eastern under slash border. And please, please keep supporting the show on Patreon and on PayPal. As right now, right now, this is the time when I am most dependent on you. But yeah, next episodes will be about Cuba and how it's like there and what connections do these people there still have with the Soviet Union. What especially wonders me is why are all their cabs pink? Because Aneta was there for the New Year's, and wow, she posted a bunch of pictures on her Facebook page. That's another reason why to follow it. And of course, follow her uh, on Instagram. I'm pretty sure that she'll post the link on Facebook at some point, too, you know. Uh, also, follow Chantel on Instagram, uh, at uh, Television with an E, but which I'll post the link to myself. But yeah. Keep yourselves involved and join our Discord chat. There are multiple links posted everywhere by this point. Another one coming in the show description. But yeah, we'll be making we'll be making more episodes. We'll be going forth in the Stalin series, and the fact that I'll have more time to make make a proper Stalin episode later this month, yeah, warms my heart. 
But now, now let's get back to the news. Oh, one last thing, though. Due to the massive popularity of my translation of Alexander Nevzorov's speech, I'll probably be looking at some other Russian public speakers or something more from Nevzorov and translating that, too, to people, because I figured that maybe, maybe bringing some Russian language famous speeches or, or just important pieces of culture to all of you Western audiences here. That could also be another thing that we could do in the show. So uh, I'll take a look at this, but in general, trust me, I read all your emails and I take a good look at what you people want to get from these episodes. And this, this is just another way how I could probably, probably improve the show. And now finally, yeah, let's get back to the news. So, what did actually happen last year? For one, a lot of things did, and uh, this is a nice time to catch up on everything, really. For one, let's start talking about the shopping mall fire in Kemerovo. In Kemerovo Oblast. See, on March 25th, 2019, fire at the Winter Cherry shopping center in Kemerovo killed 60 people, of which most were children. I reported on this together in my uh, Bombings of 1999 episode, and uh, what happened with that? Well, see, on April the 1st, Vladimir Putin dismissed Kemerov governor Aman Tuleyev, who promptly assumed leadership of the region's Council of People's Deputies. Law enforcement later changed the directors of the Kuzbas Emergency Management Agency and Kemerovo MCS Compliance Department with felony negligence and embezzling roughly 2 million rubles, which is $28,775. In total, 15 local officials and firefighters were charged with various crimes in connection with the deadly fire. The investigation is still underway. In August, it was extended until March 25, 2019. The winter cherry itself was demolished before the end of the summer. And, uh, yeah, I checked up on what Medusa is doing this, and apparently most of the victims' loved ones, whom, well, guys, my friends and colleagues from Medusa.io, and read that site if you don't already, managed to contact, now refuse to talk about the tragedy. It is still too hard, one person said. Kemerov official Dmitry Amikin says people to this day bring flowers and children's toys to the makeshift memorial erected not far from where the shopping center used to be. There are no benches at the mall's former grounds, the relatives of the children who died in the fire often come there to sit and reflect. There was some debate about the relatives about what to do with the land, someone that left empty but most supported the plan to build a memorial square. For a time, family members would meet up at the school gymnasium where they awaited news about their loved ones on the night of the fire. In the spring, Igor Vostrikov, who lost his wife and three children on March 25th, created the Vkontakte group Voice of the People, where he collected complaints about the work of public officials. In the summer, he won the United Russia primary race to run for a seat of Kemerovo's Council of People's Deputies, but he lost the general election in September. That summer, Vostrikov told Medusa that he and several other parents had considered moving away from Kemerovo, but later he realized that his, quote, whole family was laid dressed in this city, and you really, really can't get away from yourself. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Further on, further on, another thing that we looked at was the trash protests at the Volokolamsk landfill. That also happened um, earlier. At the beginning of the year, suburbanites outside Moscow launched mass protests against local overcapacity landfills. Basically, in Volokolansk, the fumes from the nearby Yadrovo landfill were making life in the city unbearable, and several children had even been hospitalized with suspected inhalation poisoning. Protesters called the situation in Volokolamsk a public and civil disaster. And since then, 
Moscow regional officials fired Volokolam's district head Yevgeny Gavrilov, who quarreled openly with his constituents, but they also opened a secondary landfill station in April to disperse the garbage despite continued protests. In June, a gas containment system at the landfill was finally brought to full capacity, processing up to 2.5 cubic meters, which is 88 cubic feet, of landfill fumes per hour. Officials have apparently kept their promise to limit the number of dump truck deliveries to fewer than 80 per day, and they say the whole landfill will be shut down by 2020. In December, local activist Artem Lyubinov stated that the stench had returned to the city in recent weeks. Well, Okolamsk residents suspect that the dump's degassing system isn't powerful enough to remove all the air pollution. In December, Moscow regional officials said that they haven't ruled out seizing the landfill from its owner if he fails to address the health code violations. The authorities also have kept Volokolamsk's activists in their crosshairs. In August, police charged Artem Lyubinov with failing to declare his supposed dual citizenship, but the case was dropped in October for a lack of evidence. In September, police charged another local activist, Anatoly Chipsanov, with using violence against a state official for allegedly headbutting Yevgeny Gavrilov. Chipsanov's case is now before a court, but he apparently hopes for a settlement. Another thing that happened here in the eastern border happened in Hungary. See, in April 2018, Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his political party won another round of parliamentary elections in Hungary. This was... the whole campaign was just basically built over an anti-immigrant sentiment and a personal vendetta against George Soros. In practice, this animosity has manifested in the battle against various organizations associated with Soros, ranging from NGOs providing migrants with assistance to educational institutions. One of the Hungarian authorities' main targets became the Soros-founded Central European University. In March 2017, Hungary's parliament passed a law effectively banning its operations, bringing thousands of protesters into the streets. And, well, what happened since? Well, after Orban's parliamentary victory, the government passed new anti-immigration legislation that became commonly known as the Stop Soros Laws, allowing the authorities to ban the billionaire himself from entering Budapest, as well as anyone who works for NGOs that provided aid to refugees. State officials also continued their fight against Central European University, ultimately forcing the school to leave Budapest. By January 1st, 2019, the university's entire operations will have moved to Vienna, where it opened the reserves campus. Orban has also continued to tighten his control over other areas of public life in Hungary, from the closure and subjugation of the country's independent media to the creation of administrative courts directly subordinate to Justice Ministry, which is operating parallel to the existing independent judiciary. In December 2018, the Hungarian parliament provoked more mass protests by passing legislation that grants employers the right to force their staff to work overtime. Critics have dubbed it so far, and, you know, with... um, with quite a good reason, if, uh, if I may say so, the slave labor law. Then, then there was this important deal with Chechnya and Ingushetia and the boundary between them. See, as you might recall, for several days in October, downtown Magas witnessed the largest mass demonstrations in the recent history of Russia's North Caucasus. English clan leaders, clergy members, activists and ordinary people assembled in opposition to an agreement formalizing the boundary that separates Ingushetia and Chechnya, signed on September 26th by English leader Yunushbek Yevrukov. And Chechen leader Ramzan Kandirov. Oh boy. Ah, good buddy Ramzan. I still haven't got it to make an episode just about him. Well, the story since is that on October the 13th, Ingushetia's constitutional court ruled that the law adopted by the English parliament approving the boundary agreement was passed in violation of the Republic's constitution. The deal nevertheless centered force in the Chechen Republic swallowed roughly 10% of Ingushetia's lands in the Shuzhensky district, as much as 30,000 hectares, about 74,130 acres. Protesters called this the first step towards the loss of statehood, and multiple deputies in Ingushetia's People's Assembly declared that their votes in favor for ratifying the boundary agreement with Chechnya had been falsified. Deputies were unable to conduct a second vote, however, and several of them resigned from the legislature in protest. In early December, Russia's federal constitutional court effectively overturned the English court's ruling, finding that the boundary agreement is completely legal and impossible to invalidate. Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov called the Ingush demonstrators, quote, a tiny cluster of protesters, end quote, saying that they should all be jailed. He also invited them to Chechnya, saying that, quote, come to my territory and I stage just one rally. If you make it out alive, then I am the coward you say I am, end quote. 
You've caught off promised his constituents that English residents would retain open access to the lands added to Chechnya, but in November, armed Chechen officials forbid even a group of clan elder representatives from visiting ancient tower memorials in the Suzensky district. The Chechen authorities told the envoys that they have, quote, orders to let no one through, end quote. We will still be reporting on how that's gone on. Then there was the case of Maria Motuzanaya and felony charges for internet reposts. See, in June, as I reported here, Barnaul resident Maria Motuzanaya revealed on Twitter that she was being prosecuted for offending religious sensitivities and faced felony extremism charges under Criminal Code Article 282 for content she reposted online. Motuzanaya saved two pictures of, of, of Kontaktia that, quote, according to Kremlin, uh, showed linguistic signs of propagating the superiority of the European race over the Negroid. End quote. And this is given as they posted it and as they said. So that's uh, uh, in normal positions. I just post sick there, but still. There was one picture of black children with empty plates and the caption, Black humor is like food, not everyone gets it. Which, you know, I've posted a similar joke on my own Facebook page, except with a Stalin picture on. Which is, well, way more accurate. As well as a po- photograph showing a black child failing a math problem in front of a classroom blackboard labeled Black Bookkeeping. She also saved a meme showing Jesus Christ smoking a blunt and blowing the smoke ring out of one of his crucifixion wounds. The study since has been that Motuzana's hearing lasted from August to October, attracting prominent spectators like the rapper Husky, which is real name going by Dmitry Kuznetsov. In the end, the case was returned to prosecutors for further investigation. In an interview with my good friends on Medusa on October the 9th, Motuzanaya said she considered this outcome to be a victory. On October 17th, Motuzanaya left Russia, tweeting a photograph from Kiev and writing, Thanks everyone, Russia goodbye. A few weeks later, she asked her Twitter followers to, quote, chip in, end quote, for a plane ticket to somewhere inside Europe's Schengen area. And the rumors, at least from my sources, state that she wanted to go to Estonia, where she would seek political asylum. But hey, then there are Estonians there, which just maybe made the whole thing... um, just a wee bit difficult, so to speak. Anyhow, she postponed the trip after raising the money needed, about 34,000 rubles, which is about $500. Yeah, might as well start the podcast, really. And she stayed in Ukraine. On December the 17th, Motuznaya tweeted again that she's planning to leave Ukraine soon. On October the 3rd, Vladimir Putin suggested partially decriminalizing criminal code Article 282 so that felony penalties would only take effect for repeat violations of the 12-month period. Over the next month, the number of criminal prosecutions under Article 282 suddenly plummeted. I wonder why. That is truly miraculous convenience, don't you think? In late December, the president signed legislation redacting the first-time hate speech violations to misdemeanors. Offenders now risk relatively small fines, relatively, by Russian standards, and two-week jail sentences instead of felony charges in prison time. Repeated violations within a 12-month period, however, can, still, and will lead, however, lead to a felony charge. Another thing was Mr. Pavel Grudinin. Grudinin. Presidential candidate and, well, a general douchebag, as I like to call him. See, I spoke about this in Russian presidential election and, and uh, the presidential race of this year, last year actually. The Communist Party decided to nominate the 57-year-old general director, the <clears throat> Sovkhoz imeni Lenina, or, you know, the State Farm in the name of Lenin, uh, Limited. This is extra funny because it's always limited. In Moscow, Pavel Grudin, even though he wasn't technically a member of the party. And, yeah, his experience in politics did not extend beyond the Moscow region. Gudin shined in internet memes and television broadcasts, becoming the highlight of otherwise lackluster presidential race, if you even could call it a race, or, you know, the event previously known as elections. This is kind of crazy, but, you know, the sole story was about how the Kremlin initially held up Gudin, and then they had to call him back. What happened with him was that in the March so-called elections, Gurdjieff performed worse than any Communist Party candidate in Russia's modern history, winning just 11.82% of the votes. He also had to shave his mustache, of all the things, because he had promised to do so in an interview with uh, a very popular Russian uh, YouTuber and blogger, Yuri Duj, if he didn't win at least 15%. 
As the year dragged on, Rudinin gradually disappeared from Russian politics, even though he's still very visible on YouTube. He went back to his day job where he was busy with property issues, both his own shareholders and even IKEA, IKEA of all the people, somehow managed to sue him, cause, uh, yeah, they made claims on land controlled by, well, his massive farm estate. The Swedes wanted to build a new store of Kashir Highway, but they had to abandon these plans when Grudinin's TT development company illegally sold the land. IKEA is now demanding that TT development pay 80 million rubles, which is $1.2 million, for breach of contract. From time to time, Krujinin still appears in news media, and he's quite active in YouTube still, for example, to claim that an elderly disabled woman who used to work for him is to blame for his miserable election results. Krujinin claims she discredited him during the race, and he plans to sue her for 200,000 rubles, about $3,000, for, quote, emotional distress. Yeah, because that's how you do it. If you are a paid opposition candidate, who is a fake opposition in general... This is uh <laughs> this is this is how you do it. You you sue old elderly women who basically have nothing to lose. Then and um the craziest thing and probably the newest thing was that in November 2018 there was a report which I read. Uh, I didn't mention that yet, but I was about to, but this is another story that I like to touch here. It's about something called the best clinic medical center in Moscow. And the same things, you know, happen illegally in Ushutia and Chechnya, but this is for my Ramzangdirov episode. Um, but yeah, apparently this so-called best clinic, as their name stated, offered female circumcisions to patients as young as five years old. The clinic's website said it plainly, quote, There are no medical grounds for this operation and the intervention is carried out for religious or ritual reasons only. According to the World Health Organization, the surgical methods described on Best Clinic's website were mutilating, painful, and traumatic. This is a nice moment where I state that I also object to male circumcision as well as female. Because, yeah, I think by now that's uh, an American thing, but I've heard there's developments there. But honestly, honestly, just snipping off things from babies uh, is wrong. And especially in the female case where they're, you know, they're... There are literally no medical benefits for it whatsoever, even if you could probably claim from some for, for male circumcision, which, well, I am also fully against. I haven't been circumcised, thank you very much. Just so you know, you, well, I guess, uh, clickbaity tile, something to put in the episode link. Anyways, the thing is that... Uh, <clears throat> After journalists visited this best clinic and spoke to center's deputy genital director, the page describing the clitorectomy, as they call it properly, the removal of clitoris. Yeah, these services suddenly disappeared from the clinic's website. The organization also claimed that it only offered the surgery to patients for medical reasons, even though that directly contradicted anything and everything that had been published on its website and direct statements by the general director. Best Clinic later disseminated the season desist letter to several news outlets that, well, well, quoted, again, my friends at Medusa and my friends at Lentaru and uh, Novaya Gazeta, you know, all the nice guys whom are reading, demanding that they lead the reports about the medical center's female circumcision services. Russian human rights activists urged state prosecutors to investigate the clinic, and Diana Gurtskaya, the chair of the Public Chamber Committee of Supporting Families, Children, and Motherhood, called on the Attorney General's office to revoke Best Clinic's medical license. But that... That really never happened. We will be getting to way sadder prospects, because... Oh boy. This... (laughs) This is not a fun episode, as you might have noticed. And now, now we get into the, really the meat of all the stories here, which kind of show the zeitgeist of everything happening. The depressive stuff. In March 2018, federal investigators charged 10 young people, teenagers, with creating the Novaya Velicia group. The New Greatness, as they were called, extremist group. Case evidence later revealed the group's charter had been written by an undercover police officer identified as Raslan D., Six of the suspects were placed in perpetual detention, including 17-year-old Anna Pavlikova. Behind bars, Pavlikova's health deteriorated rapidly and her lawyers warned that her life was even in danger. On August the 15th, supporters of Pavlikova and other jailed suspect, 19-year-old Maria Duvnevik, stayed a mother's march in Moscow. The next day, a district court transferred both young women to house arrest, and this was just the beginning of all the weird groups and charges that had been setting up there. 
Now, what has happened is that the new greatness investigation is still ongoing. Olga Karlova, Pavlikov's lawyer, told media in Russia that the merits of the case will be reviewed closer to the spring. Karlova says Pavlikov's mother has also formally complained about the lack of charges against Ruslan D. Moscow's Dorogomislovsky District Court initially refused to pursue the matter, but the Moscow City Court overturned this ruling. And now, now the future of Mrs. Pavlikova's police report remains unclear. According to Karlov, interventions by Presidential Human Rights Council Chairman Mikhail Fedotov and Human Rights Commissioner Tatiana Moshalkova managed to pressure Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service into allowing Pavlikova and Dubovnik to receive vital medical examinations. Quote, we are extremely grateful to them. If they hadn't bombarded every office in the health ministry with complaints and appeals, things might not have moved at all. On December 21st, journalists learned that Pavlikova has been hospitalized. Then there was the curious case of construction workers marooned in the military installation outside Kamchatka. This is crazy because we're talking about dozens of workers hired by the, quote, Buildings and Structures Construction Management Company to build a military installation at a restricted access city outside Kamchatka, one of those closed objects, the secret cities, the things where you can get in, but getting out is a bit difficult. The men were brought to the facility without the necessary paperwork, however, meaning that they couldn't leave, which is precisely what many workers wanted to do when they realized that they weren't being paid by government institutions, no less. What happened later was that, after the publication of the story about this whole affairs, military prosecutor's office launched an inquiry into the reported wage happenings. Raslan Samshushidov, one of the central figures in Zhegudev's article, whom I read, prepare myself for this, managed to leave the construction site with three other workers and reached Petropavlos Kamchatsky, where unknown persons claiming to be from the Federal Security Service started calling him on the phone. Sam Shustidov says three men came to the apartment that he and his companions had rented for a few days while waiting for plane tickets to return home, and demanded that they open the door, but the workers refused. Today, Sam Shustidov is back home in Tatarstan, but he still hasn't received his wages for the work he did outside Kamchatka. Quote, To this day, I still can't get my earnings from them. I stay in touch with the others, and half of the workers were sent home without pay, and the others only got the official part of their salary, 5,000 rubles, $72. 70 $2 per month. On December 17th, the small climbs court finds Shamsushidov 3,000 rubles, $43, but still, uh, just a bet, for entering the restricted access territory without a permit. And here I would like to remind you that, uh, in comparison, the average salary of uh, Russia's space program technician is about $200 per month, which is just miserable. But then, and this is quite probably the the most active news, the news that, well, in a way, broke the camel's back and were curious to me as I spoke about the gubernatorial elections. If you remember, then, in September, Primorsky Krai held a run of gubernatorial election and the results were later invalidated due to widespread voter fraud. Evidence suggests that the Communist Party candidate Andrei Ishchenko should have won the race, but federal regulators, with Maria Zaharovna sprouting all over this, decided instead to hold an entirely new election. Vladimir Putin quickly appointed the new acting governor, Oleg Kozemianko, a former fishing tycoon who had already served as the head of the Korean Autonomous District, the Amur region, and Sakhalin. This was just crazy, because in a special report, everyone just, you know, had to read about how this guy finally had his fourth governorship. What happened was that Kozimianko claimed to be at home finally in Primorye, joking that his days being an outsider governor were over. And Primorye is also one of the districts where, by the way, Stalin served in his asylums. Nevertheless, he struggled on the campaign trail. Many voters disliked him and it became necessary to bar the run of elections effective winner Andrei Ishchenko from the third round, which was done easily with major legal stuff happening there. Kozhemyanko's campaign reportedly even considered removing LDPR, Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, who's, who's basically run by our good old friend Mr. Zhirinovsky. Uh, yeah, their candidate Andrei Shchenko from the race as well. A whole team of political strategists from Moscow and the Kremlin ran his campaign. Even under these conditions, Kozhemyanko apparently did significant water fraud to win the race. On December 16th, he formally took office as Primorius elected governor. On December 21st, news outlets learned that the teams of state officials from various regional agencies have been ordered to report to governor's office for, <clears throat> quote, group physical exercises every Saturday morning at 8.50 a.m. 
Those are the news, comrades, and I have followed up on everything that I have mentioned and on some things that I haven't actually. We still don't have freed Ukrainian sailors from Russian jails, and who knows how that provocation went. Uh, I actually, you know, wrote my opinions about this to Xander from Reconsider Podcast, uh, from our good old pals in the Agora Podcast Network. That was pretty good. And uh, I don't know whenever they're going to make any use of it, but still. At least that went somewhere. But yeah, the last year has been truly something to be stunned about. Something that changed quite a lot in global geopolitics. I'd say it was a turning year. And yeah, if you want to argue about this and if you think that I should follow up on some other news, please let me know. Because we're not going anywhere. Except, you know, me moving to the States. But still, we're not going anywhere. We're working as hard as we can. And we'll bring you a lot of Soviet stories in this year. Together with some news. And the news are the most difficult part of the whole show. Because those things are happening now. And that's the history that we're seeing unfold at this given moment. At any rate, hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope that you are now more informed about the goings-on in our region. До свидания, товарищ. And see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.